Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. During each episode, you will hear the sermons, liturgy, discussions, and interviews from the various weekly gatherings here at Christ Covenant Church. If you would like to find out more, please visit us online at ChristCovenantCentralia.com. Please enjoy the following audio. The blessings of peace, so that in tranquility we may behold thee, and in beholding thee may possess thee forever. Wherefore we say, Glory be to the Father, our hope and strength. Glory be to the Son, whose city, the river of life, maketh glad. Glory be to the Holy Ghost, the God who is in the midst of her. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. And amen. Amen. We come to question 23 in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, so let us read this together. Question 23 asks, What offices doth Christ execute as our Redeemer? Christ, as our Redeemer, executeth the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. Have you ever wondered why God did not send the Lord Jesus immediately after our fall into sin? Why did God author history in such a way that 4,000 years would pass before Christ would be born as our Redeemer? The ultimate answer to these kinds of hypothetical why questions is beyond our ability to understand. For as God says in Isaiah 55, 8, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. This mystery notwithstanding, Scripture does give us some hints at the divine why, when it speaks of the coming of the Lord Jesus as taking place in, quote, the fullness of time. Likewise, Jesus himself announces at the start of his ministry that, quote, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What is this fullness of time in which God chose to send his only begotten son? Why 4,000 years into human history and not earlier nor later? Well, one of the answers is that God is the supreme storyteller. And the drama of human history is the stage upon which he reveals his infinite wisdom, goodness, and glory. There is a real sense in which Christ is so great that man needed 4,000 years to prepare for his arrival. And only after certain events, certain prophecies, and certain categories of human thought had been formed, are we in any position to grapple with the momentous event of God's entrance into his creation? Just as a newborn baby has no conception of romantic or sexual love or how glorious marriage can be, so also the human race in its infancy was too immature, too prepubescent to know what a union between heaven and earth, Christ and the church, God and man might look like. For Adam and Eve, they had a distant memory of a world without sin, but none of their posterity could imagine what God had prepared for those who love him unless it was supernaturally revealed. Well, here in question 23 of the Catechism, we have one such attempt to reckon with just how great Christ our Redeemer is. 
And we find here three ancient offices, prophet, priest, and king, which give us distinct mental categories for understanding who Christ is. Put another way, Jesus arrived 4,000 years into the story so that we would have numerous other human figures by which to compare and contrast him with. So we have prophets such as Abraham, Moses, and Elijah. We have priests such as Melchizedek, Aaron, and Zadok. We have kings such as Saul, David, and Solomon. And when we set these prophets, priests, and kings next to Jesus, what do we find? Well, we find that Christ surpasses them all. To contemplate Christ's perfection should remind us of our need to confess our sins. So as you're able, let us kneel before the Lord. Father, we confess all of these sins to you in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. Let us rise for the assurance of God's pardon. The enemies of God are brought down and fallen. But we are risen and stand upright. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Saints of Christ's Covenant Church, because you have confessed your sins, holding nothing back, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. Sermon text this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. These are the words of God. And they brought young children to him that he should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased, and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for sending your Son into this world to save us. We thank you, Lord Christ, for lowering yourself and assuming a human nature, being conceived of the Holy Ghost in the Virgin Mary, and making yourself small and weak, even as a baby in the womb and a nursing infant. We praise you, O Holy Trinity, for your condescension, so that we might be elevated to sit and reign with you in heavenly places. Make us to become as little children now, for we sit at your feet. And amen. Amen. Well, after uh, two hard sermons on adultery, divorce, and remarriage, uh, we pick back up now in Mark's Gospel. And although our text this morning is only four verses, uh, there is a lot of instruction that God gives us here. We remember the context of uh, Mark's gospel here is Jesus teaching his disciples the cost of following him. Every man must pick up his cross and follow Jesus. And if you would enter the kingdom of heaven, you must first be willing to cut off hand, foot, eye, or anything else that would prevent you from hearing the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, uh, because God loves you and wants you to receive that commendation, uh, Jesus rebukes you. 
Jesus has been rebuking us so that we can be made worthy of that commendation. So far, Jesus has rebuked us for wanting to be great in our own eyes. He has rebuked us for wanting to be great in the eyes of the world. He has rebuked us for our lusts and for our low view of the marriage covenant. And now, this morning, he rebukes his disciples again for their low view of children. Already he has told them that anyone who stumbles a child in the faith or who, quote, gives offense to these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea, Mark 9, 42. So in our passage here, uh, the disciples, as is their custom in Mark's gospel, uh, continue to make fools of themselves. They continue to act as cautionary tales teaching us what not to do. They are close to Jesus, they are taught by Jesus, but they are still not fully perceiving that he is God in the flesh. And because they are walking by sight and not by faith, they continue to stumble in the way. We should also note that it is no accident that immediately following Jesus' teaching on adultery and divorce, he takes children up into his arms and blesses them. For who else suffers from adultery and divorce and broken homes like children do? Children are the innocent bystanders. They are the collateral damage of our lusts and unfaithfulness. Children are what many parents sacrifice on the altar of infidelity and selfishness. When a husband or wife commits adultery, they are not only sinning against their own body and sinning against God and sinning against their spouse, they are also sinning against their own children. And this sin undermines the chief purpose or one of the chief purposes of marriage, which is the raising of godly offspring. Listen to Malachi 2.15. It says, Did God not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Few things undermine and stumble children like having parents who profess faith and yet contradict that faith by their actions. And when children grow up in uh, hypocritical Christian homes, uh, it should not surprise us when they grow up and want nothing to do with the church or Christianity or the so-called faith you profess. It is a grave sin to stumble the children. And so Jesus teaches us in this passage what loving the children ought to look like. So let us now to our exposition, starting in verse 13. It says, and they, re- and they brought young children to him that he should touch them, and his disciples rebuked those that brought them. Uh, first question we could ask of our text is, uh, how old were these, quote, young children who were brought to Jesus? Uh, this word for young children here is paideia, which could refer to a child that is uh, as old as 12, kind of like Jairus' daughter earlier in Mark 5. Or it could refer to a child that is a newborn baby, like uh, Isaac in Genesis 17. Those both could be considered paideia. Um, However, we are told explicitly in the parallel passage of Luke 18.16 that these paideia are infants, or in Greek, brephos. Moreover, the fact that they need to be brought or carried to Jesus 
suggests that these are little ones who cannot walk or do much on their own. So these are uh, infants, newborns, perhaps toddlers at the very oldest. And this is important for us to know because Jesus is going to use them as an analogy for what we must become like if we would enter the kingdom of heaven. And uh, we all know there should at least be a difference between a 12-year-old and a baby. Uh, And so if we're going to become like one of them, we need to know which one we are to become like. Uh, We'll explore this idea more later on. Uh, A second question we, we could ask at this point is, who is bringing these infants to Jesus and why? Well, we're not told exactly whether it was mothers or fathers or grandparents. It's actually masculine plural uh, in the grammar there. So uh, it's certainly not just mothers here. Uh, But it's likely a mixture of these groups. Uh, But we are told the purpose for them bringing their children to Jesus, and that is so that he should touch them. Uh, Matthew says in his parallel, so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. So what these parents or grandparents or caretakers are seeking is a blessing from the Lord Jesus upon their children. They want their children to receive the grace of God, and they believe that their children can indeed receive that grace from him, even as infants. Uh, Many people today think that children must reach some arbitrary age of accountability before they can receive God's grace and be considered uh, real Christians. Against this error stands many, many passages of Holy Scripture, wherein children are called and regarded as saints, as sanctified, as holy, as clean, and as inheritors of God's covenant promises. The entire premise of God's covenant with Abraham is that he will not only be Abraham's God, but he will also be God to his children. God says in Genesis 17, 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants. And because of that promise, what happens next? Isaac is circumcised on the eighth day. The children might walk away from that faith. They might break or reject God's covenant like Esau did. But God promises that he will always keep his side of the covenant towards the children of believers, and even through their unfaithfulness will show himself faithful. This is the story of the Old Testament. This is the promise in the Old Testament, and we see it continuing on into the New. One of the clearest examples of this in the New Testament is Timothy. Timothy had a believing Jewish mother, but a Greek, and we presume unbelieving, father. We learn this in Acts 16.1. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 3.15. He says to Timothy, From infancy, brephos, that's the same Greek word, thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So think about this. While newborn Timothy was still nursing, before he could ever read or write or form whole sentences, God says he was being taught the holy scriptures from his mother and grandmother. From infancy, thou hast known the holy scriptures. Likewise, we read in Psalm 22, verse 9, David says, But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. 
you made me trust while on my mother's breast. From infancy, while still nursing, children in scripture can be taught to trust God and even become acquainted with holy scripture. This is one of the reasons why we want our children to be with us in the worship service, because they belong here. This is why Psalm 8 can declare, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength, you have perfected praise. Because God is the giver of grace, and he can call, and he can sanctify, and he can bless even before children exit the womb. Listen to what God says to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. This is also why Elizabeth could say to Mary, For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. John the Baptist, before he was born, is said to rejoice at the Lord's coming. I give you all of these examples so you can see that when parents desire God's grace for their children, even in the womb or even fresh out, they do not seek that grace in vain. For as the Apostle Peter says at Pentecost, the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So the arms of Jesus are open to all who will seek his blessing. It does not matter how old you are or how young you are or how far off you might feel from Abraham's lineage. The promise of God's covenant is offered to you. <clears throat> now, uh, despite these many examples of God's sanctifying and blessing children, Mark tells us that the disciples rebuked those that brought them. Think about why did the disciples do this? What was going on in their mind? We're not told explicitly, but we can kind of infer based on our knowledge of them. Uh, we might think that they thought uh, Jesus was too busy, or maybe Jesus was too tired or too hungry. They've been you know, busy ministering. Maybe they think Jesus is just too important to deal with all of these children coming to him. The disciples probably think that they are doing Jesus a favor. A favor. Uh, we've got more important things to do than minister to children who can't even understand the sermon, right? They cry, they fuss, they're a distraction from uh, the real work. And so the disciples rebuke the parents or whoever was bringing these children to Jesus. How does Jesus respond? Verse 14. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased. Or we could translate this, he was indignant. And he said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. So uh, if you want to make uh, Jesus angry, uh, try to prevent children from coming to him. Keep them away from Christian worship. Keep them away from hearing God's word. Keep them away by portraying God to them as some wrathful and distant deity who is too holy or too busy to touch them. Do this and Jesus will be made indignant. Who is Jesus? He is God in the flesh and therefore he shows us by his words and physical actions what the eternal and infinite and omnipotent God feels towards children. He is indignant 
at those who make him less loving than he actually is. He is much displeased with those who think him unable or indisposed or too busy to give his grace and blessing to infants and toddlers. Jesus says, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not. And the reason why, he says, is because of such is the kingdom of God. Of such is the kingdom of God. What does this mean? Well, in verse 15, he explains, Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. Now, there are diverse ways in which scripture tells us to be like and unlike little children. For example, in 1 Corinthians 14, 20, Paul says, Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice, be babes, but in understanding, be mature. So notice here, Paul is saying we are not to be like children and that they are without understanding, but we are to be as babes in lacking malice. That is, you know, a newborn baby is not jealous that someone has more spiritual gifts than them, which is what the Corinthians problem was. So we should be babies in malice, but we need to actually be mature and grown up in our understanding. We see the same theme in Hebrews 5, 12 to 14. It says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So there's a real sense in which we must not remain as nursing infants, drinking only milk, being unskilled in the word of righteousness. And indeed, uh, we are commanded in many places to grow up, to meditate upon God's word day and night, and that is what is going to make us into mature men and women. At the same time, there is another sense in which we must become like infants, like babies, if we would enter the kingdom. And what is that quality that Jesus commends for us here? Well, it is the childlike quality of receiving. Receiving. Jesus says, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. So what does it mean to receive the kingdom of God like a, like a little child? Well, uh, it means you receive God like an infant receives uh, well, everything, right? Uh, babies are almost entirely consumers, and what they do produce is tears, snot, and dirty diapers. Yes, they are cute. They can produce the occasional smile, but they are utterly helpless and need someone else to do literally everything for them. Uh, babies receive all that is essential to them from outside of them. And Jesus says, that is how every single one of us must become in our relationship to, the God, to God and his kingdom. This quality of receiving is a quality of absolute reliance upon God. You know what the Bible calls this elsewhere? It calls it faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. 
So when an infant nurses at his mother's breast, he is receiving by faith in his mother the substance, the milk, that he hopes and hungers for. And while that faith must be active in the child, like the child must suck, the child must nurse, he does so as one who is absolutely dependent on that milk to live. The infant receives by faith the nourishment he needs. And this is the picture that Jesus gives us if we would enter the kingdom. He says, Of such as these who nurse upon God like a baby nurses upon his mother, so we must receive by faith the kingdom of heaven. Now, what exactly is faith? What exactly is faith? Well, faith, properly speaking, is an act of the intellect assenting to divine truth at the command of our will moved by the grace of God. I'll say that again. Faith, properly speaking, is an act of the intellect assenting to divine truth at the command of the will moved by the grace of God. That's your kind of scholastic definition of faith. And what Jesus presents to us in this scene is a more, I think, accessible analogy for how faith must operate in us if we would enter heaven. We could break this down into kind of three different stages. First, we start by recognizing that like a little child, uh, we are helpless and will die without God. That is true. (laughs) We are helpless and we will die without God. Second, we feel a certain emptiness in ourselves, a certain leanness of soul. It kind of feels like a newborn would feel hunger. And from that hunger, we cry out to God to feed us. And then third, and then, like a parent carries a newborn, like a mother nurses her child, God carries us and brings us to himself, and he gives us the milk of his word. That is what becoming a Christian is like. It's not wanting to have a hungry soul anymore, not liking that feeling of being empty and hollow inside. And so, like a baby does, you cry out to God in faith. And what happens next? Verse 16 says, And he took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. When you receive the kingdom of God like a little child, God embraces you with a love that cannot be broken. And when you are placed by grace into the arms of Christ, He dotes on you. He draws you close to his bosom. He puts his hand upon your head and speaks blessing over you. Zephaniah 3, 17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Likewise, in Deuteronomy 33, 27, it says, The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. This is what it means uh, when uh, you hear Joe all the time talk about covenant children, covenant children. We talk about covenant children all the time. What does it mean to be a covenant child? Well, it means that God's everlasting arms are holding you. God is forever embracing you. And what is faith? Faith is when you hug him back, okay? The, the, the mystery of a conversion is you discovering that God was holding you the whole time and that you were just the one with your hands behind your back. 
right? This is what conversion is. God is hugging and holding his creation perpetually. And the call to repent is the call to, will you just hug him back? People who go to hell are just the people who refuse to hug him back. Okay? This is what punishment is. So God's always hugging you. He's always hugging his creation. And faith is your response to hug him back. And that is the only way you can enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says you must receive it like a little child. Close with this. The same arms that embrace these little children would eventually be stretched out on a Roman cross. And the same hands that blessed these little children would eventually have nails hammered through them. How much does God love the little children? Enough to die for them. Enough to take them up in his arms and bless them on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified for them. Because as cute as children are, at least some of them, children are not inherently good. (laughs) Do you know this? They are born sinners like you and me. And the only way any man, woman, or child can enter the kingdom is if Christ makes satisfaction for their sins. And this he has done. And in proof of that forgiveness, he has risen victorious, he has ascended to heaven, and he reigns there and shall reign forever, making intercession for us and our children as the mediator between God and man. So become as a child, receive him, and then you may enter into his joy. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, in these four words, you do indeed give us a stern rebuke. We ask that you would forgive us for the ways that we have not received children, even our own children, like you receive them. I ask that you would especially help us, uh, who are parents, to be accurate portraits of what you are like to our children. That we would uh, not be images of an angry and distant and preoccupied God to our children, but one that is willing to get down on the floor with them, hold them and hug them and love them. And God, even when they are ungrateful and disobedient, to just be to them as you are to us, to be patient, to instruct, to correct, to even spank and discipline as you do us. God, make us in this community more and more the kinds of people who raise children into godly offspring. Preserve us in our marriages Keep us from infidelity. Keep us from unfaithfulness to our spouse and to you, the God of the covenant. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. One of the ways we desire to bring our children to Jesus is by welcoming them to eat at this table. For here in the Lord's Supper, Jesus promises to be present to us, and therefore those who have been united to him in baptism are likewise invited to dine with him here. Jesus says that this bread is his body, and this cup is the new covenant in his blood. That means this is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, that in his seed all the nations of the world would be blessed. As it says also in John 1.12, As many as received him, to them he gave power to become the children of God, even to them that believe on his name. So come and receive the God of the covenant. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this. 
Real spiritual maturity is to grow in your dependence upon God. So become as a newborn babe in your absolute reliance upon him and trust that he will give you everything that you need. Receive now the benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. And amen. Amen. Go in peace.